Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello there, and you are very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Uh, as negotiations continue between the Green Party, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael on the formation of a new government, the Irish Times this weekend looks at what we might expect from such a government with a green tinge. Our specialists look at the social, the political, the economic and, of course, the environmental policy changes that we might expect. Uh, and among those pieces, our deputy political editor, Fia Kelly, profiles Green Party leader Eamon Ryan. And Fia joins me now. Hi, Fick. Hi, Hugh. How's things? Very good. We'll come to Eamon Ryan in a minute. Uh, I suppose, first of all, it struck me just going through these articles uh, today. Are we overplaying the importance of the Green Party? They do, after all, only have 12 seats. At best, they'll amount to about one seventh of the total majority which a government might might command. Do they get um, more attention than they're due? Ah, Hugh, you sound like a Fine Gael TD now with that type of thing you're coming out with. Actually, that exact uh, sentiment was uh, expressed to me last night by a Fine Gaeler who was not a fan of this government formation that's taking place and not a fan of the Green Party, that they are getting too much airtime, that too much concern is being paid to them by uh, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, that there is a fear amongst particularly rural uh, TDs in both parties and rural, the rural organisation of both parties that their policy priorities might take too much dominance in a programme for government and in a government formation. And I think that is one of the concerns that's exercising people in both parties who are a bit worried about this. And you only have to see the kind of, I suppose, the lines of debate being drawn for the next three to four years as if the government takes shape. So you have the rural independents already out decrying the Green Party influence in government. Like, you know, we... Healy Ray's always have the most colourful take on it. Uh, I think Michael Healy Ray a few weeks ago saying he was going to leave the country if Eamon Ryan was Taoiseach. You have, you can see the populist independence really gearing up for it. That's causing anxiety in, uh, in, in rural Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. And then, not involving the Greens, but you can see the Labour Party also laying the lines of, you know, how dare you go through this period without raising tax on, on, on the wealthy. So that is an argument that you hear a bit now and I think if this government formation process is to trip up somewhere along the line I perhaps think that that will be what trips it up that even if you talk to people around the talks now they say oh look you know Fianna Fáil are doing what Fianna Fáil do which is the checklist goes in or the wish list goes in from the Greens and Fianna Fáil put a tick beside nearly all of them and Fine Gael feel they have that old patrician style they have to come in and tell them actually you know that's not quite possible and we don't think we can do that so I think if there is something that blows up this process, if I can put it that way, it will be a clash between the Fine Gael wing kind of halting the gallop of the Greens a small bit and the Greens believing that they might not be able to get what they're being offered by Fine Gael over the line. I think Fianna Fáil is, as always, seen as malleable in this situation. And we might 
touch on a couple of those points again a little bit um, later. But first of all, your piece, which is very interesting about Eamon Ryan, who's somebody I, I know a little bit, met a few times down the years, known to bump into him in the occasional vegetarian restaurant. Um, he, uh, his office is around the corner. You have an interest, you paint an interesting portrait of him hopping up to the roof of yeah. the Green Party headquarters in the in the bleak, barren years after he lost, he and all his Green Party colleagues lost their seats in 2011 for a, for a sneaky fag. Yeah, it, it was, I came across this detail that actually he's an occasional smoker. As was put to me by people at the party, oh, he's more of a Barack Obama smoker than a 20 John Carroll a day type guy, you know, has one at, at moments of stress relief pressure. And it was almost like I came across this, this state secret. People were like, well, you're not going to say that, are you? And, you know, and like I eventually found it out of, of a couple of sources, so I felt I could go ahead with it. So I'm not sure that, you know, the, the, the Ryan household are quite aware of this particular uh, penchant on his behalf. But yes. I think what was interesting when you talk to people about Ryan's character is that I suppose the story of the Green Party in government is largely known, that 2007-2011 era where we all know that Brian Lenehan and, and Eamon Ryan were close. We know that Eamon Ryan was seen as someone who could reach across the aisle. Like, it's often forgotten. Do you remember when that government collapsed around the end of 2010, start of 2011, that Fine Gael and Labour acquiesced to the passing of the finance bill in order to clear the way for the election? That the point of contact at that time was Eamon Ryan to Simon Coveney to reach out and say, look, we all want an election. Can we just get this finance bill through so the new government doesn't have, have a budget? But what, ha- what came after that period I found more interesting is that the Greens dipped in that election. Not only did they lost all their seats, they dipped below the 2% threshold, which you need to get to access state funding. So a party nationally must get 2% of first preference votes to get state funding, which is a huge thing because when that happened, the Greens, they lost six seats, they dipped below 2% in the 2011 election. They had no money. They had to like basically lay off all their staff. Eamon Ryan won a leadership contest uh, at that time, took over the party leader's, leader's office, wasn't paid a salary. So he was kind of running on fumes. It was him on his own in that building on Suffolk Street. A lot of people are aware of that building or, you know, pass it a lot. It's, it's when you take a left at the bottom of Grafton Street before Elvery's. There's a kind of old cruddy-looking 1980s era with those big tube door handles, big blue door. I think on, that flo- on one of those floors of that building is where the Green Party HQ is. And Ryan had to come in and commandeer what, when they had money and had staff, was a general secretary's office and kind of get this thing back up and running. And at that time, he did a few things. He became leader of the Green Party. He started to work in some consultancy business. So he did like a day a week, I think, in consultancy at a European level in, you know, Brussels, Paris, Berlin. Also did a bit of work for a think tank in London and set up a kind of an NGO type, I think it's called Climate Conversations, uh, or words that effect situation here but he more or less kept the thing going while working as a consultant on a day a week basis to bring income and that has really stood to him in terms of the amount of people I spoke to of the older generations of Greens who are deeply deeply grateful for his efforts at that time really came across. Because I mean you make the point you know he he had, he had a, a small family at the time um, he could probably quite easily have found himself a job somewhere in, you know, sciences, environmental areas. He's a former minister for communications. There almost certainly would have been something for him. So he kind of, he paid his dues there and that still has value, you're saying, to this present day, at least with the older generation. Yes, it still has value. And like, even as recently, like, it's hard to find people who don't get on with Eamon Ryan, but one of them is Paul Gogarty, the former Green TD, 
he's had a, a constituency rivalry with Hazel Chu, who's a Dublin city councillor. And there was a debate last year about whether they'd have a one candidate or two candidate strategy in Dublin Bay South because they were doing well in the polls. There was a kind of feeling that Ryan maybe could carry a running mate with him. And John Gormley, the former party leader, actually, you know, said, well, I think we should have a one candidate strategy and instance Ryan's efforts in that 11 to 16 period as why, you know, Eamon should be left running his own. There's, I, I, I remember people telling me that when they had their party after the last, after the most recent general election, which was obviously a huge celebration, they got 12 seats, they now had a huge uh, cohort in councils, they had two MEPs, they had a strong dollar representation, and people were thanking him at that time for that effort he put in. But there's a but there to this. People who are around the party a long time say, yes, the generation who was there pre-16 appreciate and are aware of what Eamon did. But as we know... The Green membership in the last two years has swollen from 700 to over 2,700 and there's a kind of a bit of a concern amongst the older members that the new intake do not really fully understand the efforts that Eamon Ryan went to and there will I would imagine be some class of an emotional debate if and when a programme for government is put to Green members from the older cohort or the more experienced cohort maybe older is not the right word to use about Ryan's efforts, but that may not be appreciated by those who joined from 2016 on, and that's a bit of a concern. And those qualities that you write about in the piece, that fact that his ability to work with members of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, as it happened in, that, in, in 2010, um, 2011, the sense that he's a kind of a team player, might those in some, some of these cohorts of the Green Party maybe be seen as a negative, that he's seen as too malleable, too ready to compromise, too collegiate? That, that, that feeling has already kind of bubbled up in the debate about whether they would even enter into programme for government negotiations that Eamon might be too easy to go in and he's too keen to get in. And like, you know, you'd often hear people in the party say, oh, we all know Eamon won't go in at the drop of a hat. And perhaps there is a concern that he would, he, I suppose, get on a bit easy with Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, but that's just a matter of style. Like, what's going on now is the debate about pinning down what the programme for government will achieve. Like, I think in Pat piece in the weekend review he makes that point that you know it has to be in the program for government that's what's going on now but it's just a different style you know maybe newer people in the greens might want him to go in and bang the table and row with Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael all the time that is not his style but it doesn't mean that it's not as effective as someone who goes in and roars the odds working with people like even more surprising people like Dermot Ahern you know one of the kind of I suppose harder edge Fianna Fáilers of that era you know kind of seen as a bruiser when he was Minister for Justice, he didn't take kindly to what he kind of saw as a liberal liberal establishment. Speaks really highly of Eamon Ryan. Says he and Trevor Sargent were two of the most effective ministers of the recent decades. And a lot of people around that cabinet table, you know, they, they really appreciated the fact that he could reach out and work across them. They kind of thought John Gormley was a bit driven into his own climate policies, didn't look outside his own department. But with Ryan, they saw someone who reached across the table, across subjects, and was well able to, to work. And... You know, someone who knows him a while said it's kind of like that Gonzaga type, you know, patrician quality that, you know, we will, we will get things done. So himself and Brian Lenehan, himself and Simon Coveney, they kind of had that, you know, let's get along and everything needs to be done mentality. But I think his method of working is conciliatory, but doesn't mean it's not effective. Um, you mentioned Pat Leahy's piece and what Pat does is he looks at the sort of the, the mechanics of how how coalition governments work or indeed don't work in some instances and what's needed and what's required for them to work. Um, do you think that a three-way, perhaps a four-way, you know, with the rural independence, that's going to be 
in some ways the most complex coalition government we've ever had and it will require some pretty deft political skills from everybody, including Eamon Ryan and his colleagues. Yeah, and like those conversations are going on right now. Like people who work in government, people who work in these parties, like, you know, I had a conversation with someone involved in government this morning kind of teasing out how will this actually work. They don't know. They, they probably are guessing that this is kind of being touched on at leader level between maybe Varadkar and Martin in particular and maybe Eamon Ryan's in those conversations. Like every coalition government we've had has been a senior-junior relationship Fine Gael, the Labour Party, Fianna Fáil, the Greens, Fianna Fáil, the PDs. There was a dominant senior party. We are now into an equal partnership arrangement. What does that mean? Um, how do you manage, say, for example, the day-to-day running of the government? We talk about, like, if there's a dispute, there's this I talk of a clearinghouse mechanism to resolve that. What does that mean? Does that mean the civil service comes in and, and smooths things over if there, are, if there are disagreements? So it is going to be a novel approach, and, like, that hasn't been settled yet. And, like, some people... You ask them the question, well, have you thought about, for example, the chief of staff? How will the chief of staff of the government work? How will that work with the Taunish's chief of staff? How will the government press secretary work with the Taunish's government press secretary or uh, spokesman? And people are saying, look, we, we can't really have those conversations now because it'll be presumptive now to start thinking about those things in detail because this might not come off. It might fall apart. A key question then might be, who gets on better with the Greens, Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael within that government? Yes, if you had asked me that question two years ago, I said undoubtedly the personal relationship between Eamon Ryan and Michal Martin far surpassed that between Eamon Ryan and Leo Varadkar, and probably still does, being honest. Like, um, Varadkar told his cabinet or his Fine Gael members of the cabinet about a year before the election, you know, we have to be nice to the, to, 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 to the Labour and the Green Party because you might need them. So since then, there's been a bit of a st- step change. And talking to people who are involved in that Fianna Fáil Green Party government of 07 to 11, they say, yes, Brian Lenehan and Micheál Martin were the, the two ministers who kind of kept in touch with the Greens, kept on friendly terms with them, made sure they struck up a rapport with them. And Martin was, you know, quite clever in that doll between 2016 and 2020 of keeping people like Eamon Ryan on side and keeping people like Brendan Howland at the time on side. Faradkir kind of had this imperious sweep when he was in that, I suppose, post-repeal period of his leadership where they were polling well. I myself remember one vivid episode when I was sitting in a doll gallery on my own. Sometimes leaders' questions is the kind of the brouhaha you see in the six o'clock news where people throw insults across each other. That's usually followed by questions on promised legislation or questions to the Taoiseach, where more mundane matters are asked of the Taoiseach of the day about businesses' interests. And sometimes that's more of a kind of a telling insight into the, the dynamics between the leaders because they're, they've kind of dropped the theatrics for a bit. And Eamon Ryan got up and asked uh, Varadkar, I, I can't remember the subject, I, I think it was to do with, you know, reforming the fleet of, um, of motor vehicles on the road. And Varadkar go up and gave this kind of unprompted back of the hand to Eamon Ryan about you guys in government, you know, you're responsible for the amount of diesel cars you have and all. And it was completely unwarranted. And you could see Ryan visibly anger in his seat. So I think the personal relationship between Varadkar and and Ryan is not perhaps as strong as the personal relationship between uh, Martin and Ryan. And also there's a corporate memory within the Greens about Fianna Fáil, They'll, have, they'll play silly boogers, but they'll, you'll probably get what they want out of them. It's kind of an accepted fact that Fine Gael will be harder to deal with in, in, in government negotiations. And also, it kind of steps down the Green organisation a bit. I spoke to a lot of Green Party, party councillors for a piece in the aftermath of the local elections, and they just had a real distaste towards Fine Gael at local authority level as well as at national level. They just didn't like them. They had experience with how they operated, and they would you would often hear some... Green Party councils say, yeah, look, you know, Fianna Fáil are what they are, but 
they're going to be more amenable to doing social housing projects and more amenable to public housing than Fine Gael are. So I think through the, out the organisation, they probably see Fine Fall as being easier to work with than Fine Gael. Is it not the case, though, that, I mean, both parties, both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, will be looking nervously over their left, right shoulders at their rural wings in particular, who TDs whose constituents, constituents generally tend to have more problems with what they perceive as being green, green policies. Um, but Fianna Fáil would have that at least as much, if not more so, than, than Fine Gael, given where its base is these days. They would, and that's one of the concerns. Like, one of the interesting things in the last few weeks has this the debate about like the coming together of the civil war parties has largely been won that you know both organizations to a certain extent accept that it will happen there that is not to downplay the fact that there are still significant cohorts in both parties who do not like the idea don't want it to go ahead but the real visceral reaction amongst the rural members of both parties has been to the addition of the greens so you've seen you know newspaper headlines from local newspapers around the country about the Greens being in this element of the government that is not wanted. So I think it's there it's, it's there in both parties, perhaps because Fine Gael is seen as having the stronger urban, urban middle class base that, you know, people would, in the last year or so, you know, the, the kind of flight from Fine Gael to the Greens has been well documented, that the Greens have picked up votes where Fine Gael lost them. But that's not to say that they're not as wary as, as, as the rural vote. Like, you know, I've people in Fine Gael have, have instances like, you know, the poor performance they have had, like, you know, Cork South West, for example, they don't have a seat there, like an old Fine Gael heartland. And people are going, you know, what if we go in with the Greens and we're pilloried with this anti-rural Ireland message that the populist independence and Sinn Féin will hit us with all the time? What will be left of a rural base? So it's there for both parties. doesn't necessarily mean that Fianna Fáil is more worried about it than Fine Gael. Is it fair at all to say that um, the Green Party has really failed to sell its message to to rural Ireland. One of the pieces we have in this weekend's newspaper is by Derek Scally about the long history in first local government and then national government of the Green Party there. And it's the most successful Green Party in Europe, probably. It's vying for second position in the polls with the with the Social Democrats. Uh, it's pragmatic. It's in power in many, uh, in many parts of Germany. And according to Derek, it seems to have got over that suspicion which the farming community and rural communities um, previously had of it. Uh, is that not a job of work that the Green Party here still needs to do? It certainly is. And, you know, what struck me about reading that piece was the fact that the Greens in, in, in Germany had managed to talk farmers around from the fact that they were being dis- damaged by high-level, intense, kind of almost manufacturing-level farming of on an industrial scale. And that is something you hear in Ireland. If you listen to farmers' organisations and... They, they, there is a concern about the power of the of the kind of you know the multiple retailers like your Tesco's all that. But if the German Greens have made headway in making the argument of yeah we will change that to your favour, we will diversify farming, we will diversify fruit production, the question then begs as to why the Greens didn't do it, haven't done it yet. And I think it goes back to the 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 government of oh seven to eleven that because that was such an unpopular government that anything the Greens did at that time was seen as a negative. So the famous, you know, stag hunting ban, fur farming ban. I was at that Green Conference, I think, in 2010 in Waterford in the Tower Hotel when there was a huge protest outside. Do you remember that organisation, Rural Ireland Says Enough Rise, was formed to combat it? I think since then, and the combination of that being the aftertaste of that government for people in rural Ireland, and then the Greens being completely wiped out and having to build from, I suppose, a 
Future for Fridays base that the base they're building off now is on the back of the climate change agenda. They haven't yet moved into that argument to rural Ireland about we will help you out. It, it, it can be done. And I think that if they got into government, that would be the next stage of building out the party and convincing people in rural Ireland that they're not going to damage them. Perhaps they've got hit with that caricature too much. Like, you know, the, the kind of reaction to the Greens when people say, oh, you know, they're going to decimate the national herd. And they're like, that's not what we're talking about. Those are arguments that they could have and they can prove when in government. So at the moment, they're a bogeyman because of what people remember from 10 years ago. If they had a term of government where their policies could convince rural uh, voters like they did in Germany that they're actually there to help them, that could be a huge help to them in five or 10 years' time. There were pieces in this week as newspaper by Kevin O'Sullivan about the, the environmental targets and the scientific realities underlying them by Cliff Taylor, the overall economic impacts of some of the very significant moves which the Greens are proposing across a range of things, not just not just climate change. We're not going to get into the nitty gritty of the climate change argument here. We'll save that for another day. I suspect we'll have plenty of time to be discussing um, that kind of stuff. Mark Paul talks to um, leaders in various areas of business about what their perspective is. Uh, not surprisingly, the aviation industry is particularly enthusiastic, but most of the other ones are at least uh, soften their cough a bit, people like the construction industry. And there are opportunities there if something like the massive retrofitting of, of homes across the country were to be introduced. But all these things, they're all very interesting to read, but I felt as if I was reading the descriptions of what might happen if we had an incoming green government. We're not going to have an incoming green government. We're going to have an incoming government of which the Greens, as I said at the outset, form a relatively small part. How much do you think or are you aware that they think that they can actually get of their agenda into the programme for government? Well, they've already set out what they expect. And the key one, as we all know, is the 7% uh, acceleration to a 7% carbon emissions target on average over term of government. I think they have maximum leverage at the moment and they have... I think they they can probably extract a great deal because both mainstream parties know that they have to move. Like you know, so in like you know, say for example, carbon tax accepted fact now. The deep retrofitting scheme is an accepted fact now, but both of them like it's not just a green issue as you say. Like you know, say you know, multinational companies, business interests know this is the trend of the world that they are trying to get ahead of it as well. So it's in the interests of both the mainstream parties to get there. It's the rural base they want to watch as you say, but I think this, because the Greens are so are, are divided and because they have to get a two-thirds majority through and because they now have crucially experience of government and experience of dealing with one of the two main parties, that they are in a position to extract a lot if they are to get this over the line. So they will be able to say to Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, if you guys want this to come into government, if you want this government to work, you have to give us what we want. They're probably going to compromise on some things. But I think they've been quite clear that if they did not get their key asked, they're not going in. And perhaps I think that's where the difficulty may arise betwe- between, you know, maybe Fine Gael and the Greens, particularly rather Fianna Fáil. There was some surprise when the internal debate started in the Green Party about whether to enter into these negotiations that Catherine Martin, who's the deputy leader of the party, um, was on the no side. And now, of course, she is now leading the um, the, the team in the negotiations. Um Am I too suspicious if I suggest that maybe there was a bit of deliberate playing of good cop, bad cop on that? Because obviously a divide within the Greens, or at least a perceived divide, um, might be useful in terms of these negotiations. Absolutely. Like, you know, what was the the classic phrase Angela Merkel used to use at European Council meetings, I can't get this through my parliament. You can imagine the Greens sitting there looking across at Catherine Martin, we can't get this past Catherine Martin or, you know, the the ultra-left Greens. But... 
I, I think, you know, that that is a, a, a benefit of what has happened over the last four weeks. The fact that you've had Catra Martin aligned with Nasser Hurricane and a few others voting against it. And now they're in the negotiating team. So the bogey people are in the room. They're there saying, you know, we need to be convinced. <laughs> was it a kind of a device? I don't think so, because there was a good few kind of pretty heavy debates within the Green Parliamentary Party around that time, but the merits of it, and like, you know, there seems to be a lot of arguing to bring people around, uh, like an Eamon Ryan showed a lot of patience to get them where they are now. So I think while if having Catherine Martin doing the bad cop and Eamon Ryan the good cop is necessarily, it, it is beneficial to the Greens in the negotiations, there's no doubt about it. I, think, I don't think it was by design. Should this government be formed, there'll be pretty long large ideological chasm divide between some elements of the rural side of the parliamentary parties of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael and some of the more uh, progressive left-wing elements in the Green Party. Um, how stable is that likely to be? Is it the kind of government where you might see it shedding some of its members over the course of its term? Potentially, uh, particularly in a situation if the heat really comes on, rural members of the, fin- of the parliamentary parties in Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael over the lifetime of this government, like cast your minds back to that government in 2007, 2011, Fianna Fáil lost TDs along the way, notably Matty McGrath, who's now leading the pitchforks against the Greens or preparing to do so, sharpening the pitchforks as they go into government again. And I think the reason why the Greens have been so sought after by Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael is that they bring ballast so you're not just creeping over the line. You've got, an, um, you'll have an 84 seat government which is a majority of four and then you bolt on a couple of sensible independents so i think everybody who's going into this government or wants to go into this government and is in talks at the moment acknowledges that they will lose people along the way and that's why the belt and braces approach is being taken that once you get the greens then you would probably try and get a few more independents on board and like it's not just that rural independence will go overboard because we're facing because the greens are governments because we're facing a period in which this government is going to have to make some pretty tough decisions pretty quickly and experience of governments past when they're in that situation they lose people undoubtedly like you know the Fine Fine Gael Labour government (laughs) there was a by-election in Dublin West after the the death of the late Brian Lenehan the Labour Party's kind of victor of that election Patrick Nulty was gone within a matter of weeks because they had to pass their first tough budget so this will happen it's a matter of fact and politics and I think people are taking a belt and braces approach for that particular reason. And in relation to, I think Pat makes the point in particular, and I think you've made this very point more broadly uh, on this podcast before, the programme for government counts for an awful lot and the precise wording and the difference between a commitment and an aspiration and all that kind of stuff is absolutely what it all comes down to in the end, doesn't it? Yes, it has to be nailed down in deliverable terms in a program for government. And this is where this is where the Greens will have learned their lesson from 2007-2011. That people in the party say that they did umpteenth reviews after that government, umpteenth reassessments of how they performed, and that was a lesson they one of the lessons they took out of that there is no point in whistling past the graveyard about policy if you've got a woolly commitment in the program for government. You have to have it down. And I think people in the Greens I've spoken to in recent weeks have talked about, you know, even timescales for delivery. It's not about commitments and we will aspire to do this over a programme for government. Maybe even saying we want it done by this time. Because I think I mentioned this before as well, like if you cast your eyes over the most recent programme for government, which the Independence Alliance was a, a member, like the commitments in that towards step aside Garda Station, Waterford's second cat lab were like, you know, <laughs> they were as soft as a ball of wool. Like when you look at it, it was all about like a you know, feasibility study with a view to da 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 
I don't think that's going to wash for the Greens this time. And the, uh, as Pat says in his piece, I think he cites Pat Rabbit that the programme for government is the absolute Bible. You can refer back to that at all times. So what's going on now is going to define the policy programme. It's obvious to say that for the next five years, but it is the thing that people will be able to point to and say, you gave it to us, the programme for government, it must be enacted. And what's the more the most immediate timeline then, Vic? We are now smack bang in the middle of May. It's three and a half months since we had the election nearly. Do we get a government within four weeks? I think four weeks is uh, optimistic. Um, like what you're, what, What's happening this week is, brief, is, is largely briefings. So it's largely, you know, assessing the terrain. So the briefings from Pascal Donahue are about the financial situation at the moment. There isn't, as far as I'm told, much by way of actually policy negotiation going on this week. A lot of it's been done offline through email and digital exchange because of the nature of the times we're in. I think you're still looking at about another two to three weeks of negotiations before you even get to considering ratification by party members. So I think it's probably pushed into mid to late June now. Maybe even July? I, I think if you get to July, and I think July is an outlier, but I, I think still June. But the fact that we haven't got into, or seemingly haven't got into the real meat of the negotiations, I think since we're, we're still two to three weeks ahead. And there is a degree... Like this is the thing about the Greens that I think people forget that they do consult all the time. So when they were in government in 2007, 2011, Fianna Fáil members of the government were frustrated that Eamon Ryan would be taking these copious notes, furious notes about what was going on in cabinet because he was then feeding back to his parliamentary party. They would take a decision based on what was said. That's the way the Greens operate. So you're going to see a lot of this now over the la- over the next while that the Greens have set up their reference group, the negotiating team feed back to the parliamentary party. The reference group is involved. It's very consultative. This isn't a smack bang, thank you, that Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael might want themselves. They could do it on their own. The Greens are going to slow this process down. That's not a bad thing, as the Greens would see it, because this is the way it has to go. But that's not going to lead to a rapid formation of a government. There you have it. Don't hold your breath. So thanks very much, Vic, for joining us today. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon. Um, if you would like to support this podcast and the journalism of the Irish Times, all you have to do is go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe, where you can sign up for the introductory price of just one euro for the first month. And if you want to get in touch with us, uh, we'd be delighted to hear from you. You can mail us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. Mm-hmm.